Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. The Fed can tighten until a couple of things start to happen. You know, we start to get outright recession. We start to get outright you know, kind of broken credit markets. And then, you know, finally, treasury market freezes. And when that kind of kicks in and they start to actually get like uh, outright liquidity problems in the treasury market, um, it's kind of checkmate. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. I'm joined by Lynn Alden, repeat guest. Lynn, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I want to start actually with uh, a subject that you have been very early to and very right on, I would say, which is energy. You had a great piece that just came out um, with some with some really great examples of just how to think about energy and kind of the strain that high energy prices impose on an economy. Can you kind of just walk us through the overview of how you're thinking about the energy sector in general right now? Yeah, so basically commodities and particularly energy, because energy is the master commodity, oil and gas, uh, especially oil. And you know, commodities go through these long capex cycles where, uh, you know, it's one of the few industries where, where producers have virtually no control over the price of their product. Uh, and so it makes a more volatile type of investing thing. And, the, and a lot of the projects take years to bring, you know, they, they take years of payback. They take years to bring online. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these tend to be like these slow moving changes that happen o- over the course of many years. And so generally what happens is you'll have a decade of, say, you know, commodity prices are low. Nobody wants to invest in the space. Um, you, you're oversupplied. But eventually, as that as that goes on, it becomes self-correcting because at, at, with nobody investing in the space, you slowly work through the existing supplies. Uh, you know, demand keeps growing, and eventually you hit some crossover point where now you're actually undersupplied, and you start to get rising prices. And then you get uh, over time, you get more and more supply response to come online. First, you might get some of the the faster, smaller projects, and only when the when the market sees that this is actually really persistent, then you might start to get bigger and bigger projects come online. And eventually, over years and years of investment, you overbuild uh, naturally, and then you have this period of you're oversupplied again, uh, and then prices fall again. You start the whole cycle. And, and the reason that it's been kind of like clockwork in history. I mean, it takes kind of a, it's it's like a decade of of you know rising prices and and building and then like a decade or two of like you know lower prices and 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 you know oversupply or balanced supply uh because that that's kind of the natural you know business cycle and the the time that it takes to get some of these longer term projects aligned and then time for them to run out or at mm-hmm. least dwindle uh and so you have that kind of natural commodity cycle in history and right now you know for the past call it five years we've been in this period of underinvestment uh and, and slow economic growth and then when we, you know, we stimulate the economy and we, you know, we went through a period where, you know, we weren't using oil. So a lot of, you know, uh, companies went bankrupt. Uh, nobody wanted to drill. Uh, and now we're kind of in the upswing of the next cycle where we suddenly find ourselves undersupplied. And mm-hmm. these things take years to fix. And it's not just production. It's also transportation capacity. So pipelines, LNG facilities, and it's also refining facilities. It's basically the entire energy complex uh, we've underinvested in for, for quite a while. And the way this generally works is when you, when you combine that with the fact that, you know, fiat currency is debased over time. Uh, when, you, when you get to a next upswing in the commodity cycle, basically what you do is you get this huge spike in prices over a few years. You eventually reach some new normal equilibrium 
that's much higher than the prior equilibrium because you know during that whole multi-year process you've debased the currency quite a bit but it kind of shows up all at once because it doesn't show up until you're undersupplied again and so i think mm -hmm. right now the combination of you know there's oil companies are being very disciplined with how they invest uh in part because you know capital markets for ESG reasons and because they were you know, previously tired of losing money, they're not putting a lot of money into the space, even now with, with pretty high energy prices. Uh, and then uh, you know, other factors, like just basically all, all the things that kind of came to this, we have this, this structural period of undersupply now. We also look at OPEC, for example. You know, they used to have tons of spare capacity. Now there's like, you know, increasingly credible evidence that they've, you know, that they're kind of near the higher end of their capacity range so they can't just flip a switch and affect global energy prices the way they could for for decades so can you just kind of walk through like what some of the geopolitical tension that we have this war uh, ongoing between russia and ukraine how is that impacting um kind of supply side dynamics in in the energy market yeah it's a good question and one thing i'll point out is that you know before the war when we look at say european natural gas prices mm -hmm. Um, you know, they they went. They look like a Weimar chart. They they just literally went vertical. They went <laughs> up like crazy. multiples. It, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's absolutely insane. It's it's totally yeah. untenable. That all happened. People forget in late 2021, right before yeah. the war, uh, and and the the or the war is now an added, you know, layer on top of something that was already really bad. Um, yeah. And so basically, what the war did was the war now has added a lot of uncertainty, right? So. Uh, they, they've added uncertainty to Europe, right? Because now you have this untenable position where, you know, Russia still wants, you know, they, they, they've had a lot of their imports cut off. They still want to make cash flows from exports and they can't just flip a switch and route all that gas to China. I mean, that, that all takes infrastructure to move around. They can't just say, they can't just teleport over to China instead, right? So, mm. so if they were to say shut off to Europe, it takes years to then, re, you know, eventually be able to sell that somewhere else. Uh, at least at the quantities that they want to. Meanwhile, Europe wants to get away from Russian oil and, and Russian gas, but especially the gas component. Again, they can't just you know uh, you know snap their fingers and then have all these LNG terminals appear and you know domestic production and you know shift to coal and then new pipelines from North Africa, right? So basically, both sides take time to move away, and both of them are benefiting from the current arrangement because Europe doesn't want their gas shut off and Russia wants, you know, uh, uh, cash flows from exports. Um, mm. But basically, there's there's this now situation where Russia has kind of a frightening amount of leverage uh, over, you know, cent especially, you know, kind of that central eastern Europe uh, portion. Um, in terms of oil markets, you know, oil's fungible i mean it's, it's pretty fungible not not completely fungible because there's different types obviously but basically it's a relatively fungible fungible market uh and so we've seen that as say the west you know sharply reduces their russian oil consumption we have india swoop in and they're happy to buy it because unlike natural gas oil can be moved around the world pretty easily for the most part so india is mm -hmm. happy to buy that oil um russia can also send it to you know some opec nations uh, and they, they can basically resell it. There's basically there's ways to still get Russian crude around the, the global market. So it's not as though we just kind of shut out Russian energy. Uh, but instead, we've added frictions now. Uh, we've kind of reduced the set of energy that the West can get it from. Uh, Asia is still happy to get that energy. South America, in, in many cases, still happy to get that energy. And so we've now added frictions, and it's it's more important for the natural gas side than the oil side because the oil will still make it to market 
pretty readily, whereas the natural gas is the one that, that basically takes a lot of infrastructure if you want to change you know, between buyers and sellers. Also, I think a lot of people think about oil and gas like, oh, this is what I put into my car and we need to transition to green, et cetera. But, you know, the raw materials of, uh, you know, oil really is an input cost for basically everything in the economy. So maybe if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the less obvious things that that oil um, and energy prices are an input cost for as well. Yeah, one of my contacts described it as air under the curve, and I felt it was a good enough description to write an article on it. And so basically yeah. a lot of people are concerned is it all going to go to $200 a barrel? Is it going to come back down to 80 And you know what's it going to do? Whereas the important thing for the consumer and really for energy producers as well is what is the integral of energy prices, meaning not just, not just the price it goes to, but the time it stays at those prices. So if oil just chops along sideways for quite a while at $100 a barrel, you know that, that's a meaningful drag on consumers around the world. And if natural gas prices in Europe stay at these like kind of Weimar levels, uh, that's a huge drag on you know both European households, but then also European manufacturing competitiveness because now their electric electricity prices are silly, and if you're trying to compete in a global market in terms of making goods, you're now at a structural disadvantage. Not having cheap energy is one of the biggest disadvantages any manufacturer or really any any sort of company can have. And so, generally speaking, I mean the whole point of you know, over time, technology makes a lot of things disinflationary for us. Basically, that things things should get cheaper relative to our incomes because our technology and our organization gets better over time. And so, mm-hmm. for example, you know, it used to be that you had to farm by hand, and so a significant percentage of the population had to be farmers to feed everyone. But mm-hmm. as we invented the tractor, and then you, you can imagine self-driving tractors, you you kind of dwindle from like say 30% of the population has to be farmers. Mm-hmm to like half a percent of the population has to be farmers and that, you know, the remaining people can spend a very low percentage of their income on meeting all of their food needs, right? Because that's that's technology deflation. Um, and that we generally see that over time in commodities, especially the more flexible commodities, the soft commodities, we see it to some extent in energy. Um, but the problem is you run into periods where that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and so humans thrive when commodity prices are cheap. Um, but when we start to get having to put in a bigger percentage of our income into meeting our basic needs. So meeting our basic, you know, fuel costs, our heating costs, our electricity costs, um, the, as you point out, the input costs for everything else. So for example, natural gas is a key input into a, a certain types of fertilizers, which then translates into higher food costs, or in some cases, outright food shortages, uh, if we don't have enough. Uh, and so, then also the transportation costs. So, for example, the you know the cost of of running the facility, uh, transporting you know uh, packaged goods to the grocery store, right? All that is energy intensive. Uh, and then you know when you overlay things like, for example, I mean the like this this headset has plastic, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know made out of hydrocarbons, right? And so mm-hmm. all the equipment we're using between us, I mean it's pretty low cost for these things, but basically everything we interact with. So much of it is basically tied to hydrocarbons. Even electric vehicles, you know, when you get copper and and nickel and things like that out of the ground, that's a very energy intensive process. Uh, And then in addition, a lot of the electrical energy we use from the grid is coal based or natural gas based. Um, You know, unless you're like in Norway where it's, you know, it's almost all hydro. There, There are some exceptions, but a lot of our grids 
especially in a, I mean, Asia is very coal based. When you go out west, it's, it's a lot of it's more natural gas. You know, in kind of the Western world, we have all you know, depending on your country, what the geography is, what the situation is, different grid types. Uh, but basically, we're very reliant on hard hydrocarbons for pretty much everything in our lives. Whereas we see it most obviously when we go to the pump and, and get gasoline, but it, it actually affects everything else. And so that's why pain at the oil. Pump. Yeah, the pain right. at the pump, but really it's the pain in everything, right? Yeah. So basically when energy prices go high and then importantly when they stay high, when they're sticky high, basically what that does is that's that's sucking out you know, basically efficiency and discretionary income from everything else mm. uh, that then translates into us being able to spend less on more productive things because we're spending more on just maintaining our absolute basics that we're already we're getting pretty cheap. And now we're paying, you know, one and a half times as much or two times as much or three times as much or if you're Europe, more. Uh, and that, that completely drains from things we'd rather, you know, be spending that, that, that money on and those resources on. Energy for me is, is one of these unique commodities in that it, it really impacts basically every part of a company's cost structure. So if you take the example of those headphones, right, that are sitting on your head, right, there's the way that I kind of think about uh, cost structures for companies in general. So there's like the raw material input costs, and then there's the value add cost, which is like labor, and that's where a company's margin comes out of. So right, there are the raw materials that go into that headset. I, I can't really see super well, but it looks like there's some plastic in there. There's some like other materials, right? And that's kind of the hydrocarbon, like the raw material input cost going up. But then when you think of the value add, right, which is the... The, the amount that companies charge for like putting everything together and then distributing and selling it, energy has a huge input cost there, right? Because they need to transport all of these materials uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it really, it's a, it's a huge drag on on the economy. And, um, you know, this was really exactly. exemplified. And, it, and it, it ties into wages because, for example, the fact that natural gas and that things like that affect food prices. Uh, now, you know, if, if I'm running a headset ma- manufacturer, all my technicians have higher food costs, higher fuel costs, higher rent. Uh, and so they're going to demand higher wages. Uh, and so I, you know, then I have to be able to try to pass, I have to try to raise my prices for my headset and I have to like pass it on to consumers. And so they get squeezed on the raw material side, but then they also, every, like you point out, every single part of the cost structure, all the wages, because they're trying to do their fuel costs, everything gets squeezed. Uh, and you start to get that, that pushing through uh, to the negative side on, on equities. Exactly. And it, and honestly, the guy who uh, really helped me understand that as well is a guy named Russell Clark, uh, who's been on the show a couple of times, uh, but has a great kind of link in between, you know, food inflation, and also uh, bond yields uh, as well. But in, in that kind of segues into, you know, we were talking before, there's a great interview uh, J- that John Collison um, gave of, of Stan Druckenmiller. Uh, and he had this, this one observation which really stood out to me. He was talking about this period back in 2001 where he was getting whipsawed around. First of all, everyone should just go and listen to this. It's like the 40-minute mark into the interview. It's really interesting just about how much money he made and lost in the span of a year. Everyone should go and listen. But he had this remark uh, at the end which really stuck with me, which was after taking a break, you know, basically because he was so emotionally damaged from, from his year, he came back and looked at markets and saw a couple of different things, which was one, higher bond yields, a higher dollar, an elevated uh, stock prices, right? He was looking at the NASDAQ in particular. Um, and he had a friend of his run a regression. And basically, when you had the case of, uh, when you had that specific case, um, oh, sorry, high, higher energy costs, higher energy costs, yields, and a higher dollar, then earnings uh, for companies would revert, uh, shrink by, by about uh, 35% the following year. So, you know, a month ago or so, like Yuri and Timura came back on the show. And at that time, we were talking about how uh, Wall Street was still projecting like 10% earnings growth. Um, and that has started to revert. But like maybe, Len, you, you kind of connect these ideas that we're talking about in the energy sector and how that translates into 
you know, companies' earnings and stock prices and, and all that kind of good stuff and how you're viewing equities basically as a sector over the course of the next year. We should expect many types of earnings to underperform expectations. Uh, you know, that might not hit all sectors equally. So, for example, um, obviously energy companies can do well in that environment, but even things like, you know, uh, banks or healthcare companies, they're not they're not like in the in the direct line of sight for that. It's a lot of companies that make things using raw materials or they're they have supply chain, they have complex global supply chains, uh, while they're also trying to sell products to the to the consumers, it's very easy for them to get squeezed at any point in the chain. Basically if they have if they have labor shortages and they're paying higher wages to attract people, um, if they have higher input costs, if they have delays due to say Chinese lockdowns that keep happening, there, there's all these frictions now uh, between their all of their inputs and then trying to get that output to the consumer. And now because the consumer squeezed, that company likely has trouble raising prices uh, on their products and pushing that to the consumer. Uh, and so we're, we're you know almost certainly going to see it in lower margins. We're already seeing margins roll over. And as you point out, analysts have been slow to adjust their earnings uh, periods. Uh, but I think that going forward, they're going to come down. I did a, a test looking back at previous inflationary spikes uh, of, of history. And generally what you get it in kind of these big, you know, either high single digit or double digit inflation spikes, it's often the case that earnings are kind of flattish uh, nominally, right? Where they might, you know, it's not like a deflationary bust where they just kind of completely collapse uh, because the unit that you're measuring in, you know, is, is like much weaker than it was the year prior. But in real terms, it's pretty terrible um, because if they stay flat while you know inflation is nine percent, that's terrible. Um, and if they go down five percent while inflation's up nine percent, I mean that's a you know it's a it's a fourteen uh, percent swing. Uh, and so that's the that's the type of environment they find themselves in now. And then also with that higher inflation, we're, we're seeing higher treasury yields. We're also seeing some degree of credit stress. You have higher corporate bond yield spreads over that higher treasury yield. So basically the, the cost of capital for companies is higher. Uh, and that's also one of the one of their expenses. So across the board, raw input costs, wages, um, uh, you know, interest on their debt, all those things are kind of revaluing at a higher level while they likely have trouble passing on, on cost to the consumer. And then the dollar part's interesting because historically whenever the dollar has a strong run up, that ironically causes a number of problems, not just for the world, but also for the United States. It kind of like hits the rest of the world and then ricochets back into us uh, because the globe is so interconnected. So number one, the foreign sector, you know, when, whenever the dollar has these kind of sharp runs up, the foreign sector generally stops buying treasuries or in some cases will outright sell treasuries uh, because basically they're, they're short dollars. They need dollars. And one of the ways they can get dollars is to sell their huge stockpile of U.S. assets. Uh, and so you generally get, ironically, weakness in the treasury market uh, when you have a strong run-up in the dollar. And we're already seeing that now. Basically, we have unusually low liquidity in the treasury market. We have unusually high volatility in the treasury market. The move index is super high, for example. And there's basically signs that the treasury market is not functioning very well. And we're seeing in the, in the data among foreign investors that they're not really buying treasuries. Uh, but then more to the point of your question, it also affects corporate earnings for a handful of reasons. One, uh, all the things we discussed. But two, as the dollar strengthens, generally the whole world slows down because everyone's debts are hardening, basically. So if you're an emerging mm -hmm. market, you have dollar-based debts, your liabilities are getting stronger. 
Um, and so you're basically getting squeezed on that end. So you're 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 buying fewer American goods and you're buying fewer services and you're kind of, you know, you're you're just the whole economy is kind of slowing. Uh, but then number two, if you're uh, an American company and you're and some percentage of your revenue is from overseas, right? So for a lot of S&P 500 companies, it might be 40% of their revenue is is you know from other countries. And if they're paying roughly the same price in say euros or yen and other things, because you know prices take time to adjust upwards. Um, so if they're paying roughly the same price, and then when they when the company translate that back into dollars to report their earnings, and the dollars you know gone up significantly versus the euro, the yen, uh, you know whatever other currency you want to look at, that's going to result in fewer dollars. Uh, and so you'll get a lot of reports about negative currency adjustments and things like that. And so pretty much every metric that goes into an earnings result is under stress when you have high energy prices uh, and that strong dollar environment. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell my sent you. I want to I want to get your thoughts on just everything that's going on in terms of monetary tightening from the central bank, right? Which is QT, which is them uh, basically taking, um, you know, bringing treasuries. The way I kind of think about it is if if QE is an asset swap and they're taking treasuries out of the market, well, then they're kind of bringing that supply of treasuries back online, right? Which has the effect of lowering bond prices and driving up yields, which the corporate sector basically has to absorb. I've been hearing, this is a directly a question. I've been listening to All In. I don't know how much you've been listening to this podcast, but uh, there's this kind of idea, right, which um, is basically to to revert or get back to a state of normalcy. We need to draw an enormous amount um, of the stimulus that we've injected over the past 10 years out of the market. The other hand, the other side, like, and, and if, you, if you imagine doing that, that's just, to me, it seems like a tremendous amount of pain. I guess the other way that you could look at it is, Actually, the current, the legacy system, and by when I say, I mean, the non-crypto, which is kind of one of the only free markets I think that still exists, uh, it's so manipulated at this point that we're never going to get back to something that like kind of, we're never going to return to free market dynamics because the amount that central banks have kind of put their finger on the scale at this point has changed things so drastically that we'll never be able to successfully withdraw the liquidity from the system. So I guess my question to you is like, if you had to fall into one of those two camps that that uh, markets have already been manipulated to the point where we're never going to get them to return to some state of historical normalcy, or which is the kind of the narrative right now is we are going to withdraw that liquidity. There's going to be a tremendous amount of pain, you know, potentially a great depression, right? People are talking about, you know, 
the D, the depression word. Um, where do you kind of fall in between those two camps? So I think ultimately they're not going to be able to normalize uh, that mm. it's it's both politically untenable, but that even it just becomes a certain point mathematically untenable. And so mm. I, I generally view the idea that we're going back to normal. We're gonna we're gonna have like a, a period of austerity to be. It, it's somewhat delusional in the sense that you know they kind of basically it's kind of this based on premise that you know when you have inflation, look now you have to raise interest rates, you have to get to back to positive real rates. And my contention is that you know due to decades of you know kind of bad policies uh, and deliberately creating more credit and deliberately being stimulated and lower and lower interest rates over time, we've built up so much debt in the system. That is reliant on those low rates, and that's at the household sector, it's at the corporate sector, it's at the it's at the public, the federal sector, um, and so all these debts rely on the premise of super low rates. And then, ironically, you know, kind of passing that on, tax revenues rely on asset prices going up and the economy growing, uh, you know, substantially in nominal terms. And so, when that machine starts stopping, right? So when you start to harden the underlying unit. Uh, and basically you don't have money supply go up anymore and you start to get higher structural rates that whole thing grinds down a lot faster i think than people realize i don't think i don't think a lot of people realize just quite how financialized and how how reliant each thing is on that thing before it basically is turtles all the way down uh and so you know to use my prior you know description you know if if they could just raise rates and get us back to normal that kind of assumes that you know, the government at 130% debt to GDP is going to be able to pay positive real rates structurally going forward, and that you know, um, corporate balance sheets and that household balance sheets that everybody everybody can absorb positive real rates on a long-term basis without sort of getting all these liquidity disruptions and just outright depressionary conditions. And then it assumes that there's no feedback loop. So what happens when you have when you try that for a couple of years? Because we can certainly try it for periods of time. We're, we're obviously in the middle of attempting it. Um, when you start trying that, you start to get the, those negative feedback loops, and then the people that are trying it end up getting voted out of office because everybody's miserable, and they want to try something different. They don't even necessarily know what they want to try differently. They just, whatever this is, we don't want this anymore. Let's let's vote for the other guy. And so they go to the other guy. It might not be better, might be worse. Who knows? And if that's bad, then they, they go back. They know we want the other guy again, right? They, they'll, mm-hmm. Whatever's not working, they'll vote for the other thing. Um, and so that's why it's usually hard to maintain that kind of downward spiral. And so the way I would describe this is the Fed can tighten until a couple of things start to happen. You know, we start to get outright recession. We start to get outright you know, kind of broken credit markets where, just you know, credit markets freeze. No one's able to bring new debt to market, refinance existing debts. Uh, and then, you know, finally, treasury market freezes. Basically, the dollar spikes so much. Um, you know, the banking system's not able to buy treasuries. The foreign sector's not able to buy treasuries. Uh, tax revenues are falling because the economy is not growing and asset prices are not going up. So they have to issue more treasuries. And when that kind of kicks in and they start to actually get like uh, outright liquidity problems in the treasury market, um, it's kind of checkmate. Uh, and so they have to reliquify markets in some way. And so we're not at that part yet for a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, obviously, you know, there was so much liquidity in the market that you can suck a good chunk of it out, and that takes time to actually get back to a breaking point. And number two, right now, because of prior years' good tax revenues, and because you know, in quarter two and quarter three, there's not a lot of net treasury issuance. Um, this problem is not really being marked to market right now. We're starting to see cracks 
in a couple of these markets, but nothing's kind of totally broken yet. Um, but I think when you go out to say 2023, uh, and, you, and if you were to kind of stick in this period and keep pushing asset prices down, uh, by that point, the treasury market is, you know, the treasury has to come out to market and issue a lot of new treasuries because they're going to have a wider deficit. Uh, they're not going to have this current period of, you know, relying on last year's good tax revenues. They're not going to have that behind them anymore. And so that's when I think you start to see kind of that feedback loop break down, right? So there are these kind of hard limits on the system that eventually prevent them from continuing to tighten. Uh, and I think that's the thing that the market maybe doesn't fully realize. What is the relationship there? Could you like clearly outline the relationship in between a stronger dollar and some of these impacts that it's having on the treasury market in general? Because I think that's a really important point. Yeah, there's a, there's a basic couple feedback loops that all kind of go in the same direction. So the, there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, the United States is part of how we've maintained the, the you know, reserve currency status, kind of our side of the contract, is that, you know, the whole world needs dollars. And we run these structural trade deficits so the rest of the world gets dollars. And that kind of happens automatically due to, due to, due to the network effects in place. Basically, there's, there's so much demand for dollars, it makes it so that the dollar is stronger than you'd expect it to be on a trade-weighted basis. And so we have these structural trade deficits. And the foreign sector then takes those dollars. You know, For them, it's a structural dollar surplus in aggregate, not every country, but all international countries together. And they will then generally buy U.S. assets with them. They'll, you know, they, started, they used to buy treasuries. They increasingly began buying equities. They'll buy U.S. houses and, and literally rent them back to Americans. They'll mm-hmm. buy U.S. corporate bonds. They'll basically buy all sorts of U.S. financial assets. Mm-hmm. And so they have something like $50 trillion in, in gross U.S. assets. Um, and they also have something like $13 trillion in U.S. dollar-dominated debt. Uh, and that's owed, ironically, mostly not to Americans. For example, a European entity will loan dollars to an emerging market entity, or China will loan dollars to an African country, for example. Um, but either way, those are de- uh, denominated in dollars. And so when you start to get global recession, or you know, global trade dries up, or the dollar is merely strengthening relative to the cash flows of those dollar-indented entities, you start to get kind of breakdowns in that system. And entities that both have dollar assets, but then also have dollar liabilities and they owe dollars, what they'll generally do is start to sell some of their U.S. assets in order to get dollars to service their dollar-denominated debts. Um, and so generally speaking, you'll see you know, if back in, say, March 2020, when we had the, the whole COVID crash, the lockdown crash, you had a dollar spike, you had dollar trade dry up, um, and the foreign sector sold hundreds of billions of dollars of treasuries in a pretty short period of time. Treasury market completely broke, um, and so the Federal Reserve had to come in and buy like a trillion dollars of treasuries in three weeks to reliquify the market. And that's an example of that feedback loop happening very quickly because it was an unusually, you know, abrupt period of time when you just kind of shut down the whole global economy. But we're kind of seeing that now play out on a slower basis, where the foreign sector, because they're squeezed, is unable to keep buying treasuries. They're, you know, they're, they're, you know especially when you look at foreign exchange reserves, right? So so foreign official pools of capital. Their whole purpose is to kind of stabilize their currency relative to the dollar and relative to other major currencies. Mm. And so, for example, when, you know, their currency is strengthening a lot, let's say the dollar's in one of those big weakening cycles, they're able to print currency and, and buy treasuries, buy dollar-based assets 
because they're purposely kind of um, weakening their currency and they're basically building, uh, you know, they're collecting acorns for the winter. They're, they're collecting all these dollar-based assets. Now, when they're in an environment where the dollar is shooting up very strong and they want to prevent their currency from weakening too much, they have that big pool of acorns and now they can they can bring to market. They can sell treasuries. They can, they can trim and, or at least stop increasing their foreign exchange reserves to try to backstop their currency to some extent. Uh, and so that basically means that when the dollar is going up substantially, one is that a number of entities are getting squeezed, and then two, a number of foreign official things are, are you know, trying to prevent their currency from weakening in a disorderly way, and, mm-hmm. and they could be selling some of their assets. And mm-hmm. so you get that, that kind of inversely correlated loop where when the dollar goes up significantly, just either, either both you know, in terms of because they can't or because they don't want to, you don't see a lot of foreign buying of treasuries, and you could get outright selling of treasuries. And so that's kind of that that feedback loop we're in now. The other one is, like I said before, it's the economic loop, right? So it's not just the treasury buying loop, but it's, it's the economic cycle. And so, you know, foreign revenues are being exchanged for fewer dollars because each dollar is stronger. Uh, and so they're, they're reporting, you know, pretty poor earnings likely coming up. That generally happens in these strong dollar periods. Um, that trades into lower stock prices. Um, basically, the foreign sector is also not buying as many U.S. stocks, kind of how they're not buying as many U.S. treasuries. And so that's kind of not pumping up U.S. asset prices. And the way we've kind of structured our economy is that the U.S. is very financialized, especially around our stock market. Um, and so if, if asset prices are not continually going up, it generally means our tax revenues are not doing very well. If you, if you, were, to, if you were to map out, say, tax revenues uh, year over year, and stock market year over year, they're kind of the same chart. Uh, and so when our when our stock market's going sideways or down, usually our, our tax revenues with a, with a lag are going sideways or down. Uh, and so we end up having to issue more treasuries, you know, kind of on a somewhat similar period when the foreign sector is not really buying more treasuries. And so that that makes our central bank have to come in and either buy more treasuries themselves. Or they can do things like change SLR rules for the commercial banking system to get the banks to buy more treasuries. Basically, they have to pull levers to figure out who's going to actually buy these treasuries because the feedback loop is now causing you know, liquidity issues and yield issues and volatility issues in the treasury market. That's a very important feedback loop, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, right, the way the, the U.S. funds itself, right, is through the issuance of treasuries, so which, which makes sense, which is why the Fed really hones in and starts easing, not when the stock market is dropping, but when there is, uh, you know, when, what was the exact phrasing from 2020? It was a malfunctioning of the treasury market or something like that. But it's very, very important for the U.S. Uh, from a funding perspective and a national security perspective, right, that that remains a very liquid market. I wonder if that could explain some of the trends that we're seeing just in terms of mandate creep from the Fed um, and kind of some of these like UBI type things. Because to your point about being us being essentially an exporter of U.S. dollars to the rest of the world, one effect that that's had internally is we've kind of hollowed out our industrial manufacturing uh, kind of supply base here. And and again, one of the other, uh, you know, the tricks of right, the Federal Reserve and this monetary debasement, it's increased the price of financial assets, which makes those who own financial assets much wealthier, and it's increased this, like, wealth gap. One of the things that's really concerned me, especially when you look at it through the lens of history, is the way that politicians are trying to solve these, like, inflation, right, is uh, actually making it easier to, like, buy gas, right? Like what's happening with Gavin Newsom in California, they are trying to insolve, solve an inflationary 
crisis that was caused by the creation of money by giving people more money to buy gas. It's like pouring gasoline on a lit fire. It's very worrisome because if you view the major problem of the United States as this gap, this wealth inequality gap, then look at, look at the way that our politicians think about solving it. Think about handing out money. And then you get this weird like bread and circuses thing, which happened in Rome, which is a pretty dystopian vision of the future. Um, and, you know, our mutual friend, Joseph Wang, he wrote a really good piece about how, you know, the Fed was kind of set up to, uh, you know, intervene in financial markets. But now one of the, the Rubicons they crossed during 2020 was actually they're setting themselves up to uh, interface with the real economy, right? That direct line of credit that they basically extended to, to Main Street. So do you kind of see the connection there between that negative feedback loop that you're describing between the dollar and the treasury market? And like, does that explain to you some of these like UBI type tendencies and, you know, almost the, the central bank trying to grow and expand its administrative clout and solve all of these myriad problems? I do. And I think that that so my the biggest framework that I tie into for this whole thing is, is Ray Dalio's long term death cycle thesis. Yeah. And it's something that I've taken and I've kind of run with it because I, you know, I, I I look at the data. I kind of reconstructed the data myself, and I look at it from other angles that that Dalio didn't necessarily look at. And it, it's something I just I, I found very informative for understanding this period because there's so many people that look at this and say this is unprecedented. And it's like, well, if you go back far enough in history, this is a cycle that keeps happening in different forms and yeah. different technology and different cultures. And it's really helpful to understand this cycle. Basically, if we were in an environment where we had lower debts in the system and we had less wealth concentration, so so the median person was better off, we would be able to handle shocks in a better way. We'd be able to cut spending. We'd be able to go through tough times in, in a more resilient manner. We don't, we don't need emergency responses to things uh, when we are just inherently less indebted and, and, and wealth is less concentrated. When we're in the system as it is now, where it's debt is super high and wealth is so concentrated, meaning that the median person is so fragile. Um, that's where we get these kind of crazy responses in the face of any any smaller medium shock that happens because the system is so levered and populism is, is so strong because people are so squeezed that they have this, you know, the policymakers have this weird incentive to basically put out fires the second they happen because they don't want kind of spiraling out of control. They don't want, say, civil unrest. Uh, they don't want huge insolvencies and liquidations to happen. Um, and that's kind of the, the situation they put themselves in. And that's why when you look at these long-term debt cycles, usually the way they end up resolving is with some degree of major currency devaluation, um, where basically they they increase, you know, they, they decrease debts, and they decrease interest rates over decades for so long which, which allows for higher and higher debt relative to the size of the economy. And when they try to reverse that, they're unable to because those debts are so high and it would destroy the whole system to deleverage uh, nominally. And so instead, they end up turning to fiscal stimulus, where if you run out of monetary stimulus, now you're stuck with doing fiscal stimulus. And that's where that kind of more inflationary type of environment comes in. But because debts are so high, they can't raise rates. And it's funny because policymakers, I think, were, were somewhat aware of this um, before COVID. I mean, there was a really good BlackRock paper from 2019, and Stanley Fisher uh, advised it, where they basically laid out kind of eerily the whole playbook that happened. They said, look, you know, debts are super high. Interest rates are too close to zero. 
the Fed's not going to have a lot of tools to deal with the next recession. Now, obviously, they weren't talking about a pandemic. They were just talking about a recession. They're saying the next recession, we don't really have a lot of tools. And so what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to go more direct. We're going to have to have more fiscal stimulus. Um, the problem is that that, you know, up to and including potentially helicopter money. They said the problem, though, is that that could be somewhat inflationary. And if it's inflationary, that can drive rates up, which can then take away some of the some of the stimulus effects from that fiscal stimulus. And so you're going to have to have policy coordination between fiscal and monetary policymakers to hold rates somewhat low, despite the fact that you're having that inflation. But then the risk becomes, you know, what if inflation gets out of control? And so it becomes a challenge to maintain. They literally laid out that entire playbook. Yeah. Right. In 2019, and we, we literally went step by step through that playbook. I mean, it was actually even bigger than they probably expected because no one was, you know, no one in 2019 had a had a pandemic on their 2020 bingo card. But basically, even without that, just we've all, that kind of just brought forward and accelerated a lot of things that were probably going to happen over like five years into like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the way I'm looking at it. That when when they've built the system up the way it has, it kind of inherently has to unravel and it depends on how you unravel that how you know can you kind of manage a soft unraveling or is it one of those crazy hard ones and another fact uh to kind of finish that point is another reason why the long-term debt cycle is so destructive is that when you're in that period of falling interest rates and rising debt let's look at the at the sovereign level for example you know they're able to offset their higher debt relative to gdp with those lower interest rates so interest expense as a share of the economy is going either sideways or maybe even down, despite the fact that debt as a percentage of GDP is going up. But when you run into zero, and if you start to get inflation, and then interest rates are going either sideways or up structurally going forward, while you already have that super high debt level, now governments are paying increasingly high you know, interest as a share of the economy, uh, as a share of GDP, and there's really no way out of that. It's kind of a it's kind of a spiral until they devalue some of their debt. Basically, their debts are untenable and have to be defaulted on. And the question becomes, how do they become defaulted on? So if it, if the liabilities are in their own currency, they will hardly ever default nominally, and so they will default, you know, partially in real terms. Basically, everybody gets a haircut. As we, as we wind down here, um, I'd love to get your thoughts about what the next. Uh, decade really looks like um, because and, and I'd love to uh, you know we haven't brought up Bitcoin at all uh, during this conversation but I'd love to get your thoughts there because again referring to that Stan Druckenmiller interview I thought um, he referred to he had a pretty interesting way of describing kind of gold versus Bitcoin right both of them are sort of these debasement hedges but if you look at it you know if, if you're if it's a debasement hedge in a bullish environment that's kind of when you want to own Bitcoin, but if you're kind of uh, there's debasement going on, inflation going on, there's like a, a bearish kind of stagflationary period. That's the time when you want to own gold. So I'd love to know if you kind of think about it like that, because if I understood you correctly, it seems like your base case, the only way to get out of this is financial oppression, right? Because it looks like there's going to be high inflation or stickier inflation kind of persisting, uh, you know, throughout the next decade, but we're incapable of raising rates to a point where we can actually get it above inflation. So what we end up is basically just debasing the debt, we have negative real rates. To me, that seems like the kind of environment where you'd want to own Bitcoin, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like, what do you kind of think this next, I guess, decade really looks like? So I think this decade is going to be one where commodity prices are more relevant. So so the mm. past five years, we've not, able to, not been able to you have to think about commodity prices too much. I think the next decade is going to be totally different. I think we're going to have to constantly think about commodity prices. Um, and that we're going to have higher average inflation, uh, and 
due to financial pressure, due to how high debts are, uh, that interest rates on average are going to be lower than that inflation. And so basically various types of paper assets are going to be either slowly or in some cases quickly devalued over the course of that decade. But that it won't be a straight line because policymakers have mandates. They have legacies to think about. They, you know, they, they can't just be like, well, they can't just basically say what I just said out loud. They can't be like, look, debt's too high. We got to inflate some of it away. You know, it's just, it, they have to have these periods where they try to fight back. Um, to the extent that they can. They say, look, no, we're going to normalize. This is totally fine. Uh, we're going to go back to normal. And so you're going to have periods where you fight back. That happened in the 70s. Um, it, to some extent, it happened in the 40s. We have you're, you're trying to fight back against that sort of arrangement. And that's why even in inflationary decades, you have disinflationary pushbacks on that. Right? So there were dis disinflationary periods in the 70s. Uh, there were periods in the 40s where, where inflation went away. You had price and wage controls, that sort of thing. And then even if you go back, and I'm not calling this Weimar, but if you go back and look at Weimar, you know, people think of just um, you know, everything hyperinflated. But it was actually a multi-year process, and they, there were times where they would push back really, really, really hard. And you would get a, a collapse in asset prices in, in marks. Uh, before they eventually just couldn't maintain that pushback anymore. And then it's kind of like a, a beach ball being let go from underwater. And that's where you had the next leg up in inflation. And so I think that's the way to think through this decade where, you know, energy prices in particular are structurally undersupplied, not, not just the production of them, but also the transportation and refining of them. So we just have to, until that is fixed, we're going to have some supply side inflationary pressures. Now we can, if we temporarily suppress demand, we can kind of make those go away temporarily, but then you know once that becomes untenable, either because we've you know made our our capital markets go completely liquid and break, or because we're in a deep recession and we get some sort of reversal, that inflation is now ready to come back because the supply side problems have not been addressed, and, and they take years to address. I mean, you don't just snap your fingers. It's, you know, we can bring in a little shale oil quickly, but some of those longer term projects um, take years to come online. Uh, and take capital. And the markets have to realize that this is persistent before they might want to put billions of dollars into a long-run project. And so I think this can be an inflationary decade with periods of disinflationary pushback as policymakers try to rein in demand to not let that inflation just spiral out of control and, and to retain some credibility. And then for that gold versus Bitcoin point, I I, I do see that in the data. Uh, that That's, you know, that gold generally does better than many other assets, including equities and, and especially including things like Bitcoin, in declining PMI environments. So if, if we were to put all macro indicators into one thing, we can call it the purchasing managers index. It's kind of the sine yep. wave representing economic acceleration or deceleration. Deceleration. When it's decelerating, you know, things with margins are generally not doing well. Things with high volatility are generally not doing well. Um, liquidity is usually getting sucked out of the system. And so generally things like cash and gold are doing better than most other assets. Um, and then in the other token, when you have rising PMI environments, that's generally where you don't really want to own a lot of gold and cash. You want to own things like, you know, um, uh, equities, things like Bitcoin, uh, you know, basically other types of assets that are doing more, uh, that are doing better in that kind of risk on environment. And so as we have this conversation, we've been in a declining PMI environment for over a year now. Uh, and you know, I don't think we're quite done yet, um, but basically in that sort of decelerating environment where we're, we're getting central bank pushback, especially from the Fed, 
that pretty much it's hard for anything other than say dollars and possibly gold you know to do well in that type of environment until the feedback loops become painful enough that they end up having to reverse and that's when many of those other assets will probably do well and i think it's we're going to be in groundhog day for a while so we're going to have kind of a repeat of, of trying the same thing over and over uh this decade uh as we deal with the, this kind of high inflationary environment until we you know it becomes so untenable or so obvious that we just kind of enter a new a new regime and i think that kind of the new regime is when the fed is unable to tighten even in the face of, of inflation and we've mm. already seen that in japan and europe right so japan's got 250 percent debt to gdp they said, look, we're just going to hard cap 10-year yields at 0.25%. Uh, our inflation target is 2%. We're above our inflation target. Um, you know, we're, we're holding rates low anyway. Uh, so you're getting formal yield curve control there. And then in Europe, because you have an energy crisis and you have things like Italy with 150% debt to GDP, you know, they're unable to tighten. They have to manage spreads uh, among the weaker countries. And so they're kind of in that currency devaluation mode. And right now, the Fed's one of the stronger ones that's able to hold on, that's able to push back harder. But I think even they eventually get to a point where these feedback loops become vicious enough that they're unable to keep tightening, even while inflation's still kind of out there. Hmm. So if the if the definition of trying the same thing for the over and over but expecting different results is insanity, then this next decade is about to be insane, <laughs> basically, right? I think um, so, yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, with that happy note, um, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. If, we, if uh, listeners want to find out more about you, the great work that you put out, subscribe to any of your research. What's the best way to either follow you or, or kind of uh, follow up for more information? Uh, so I'm at lynnalden.com uh, and I'm also on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks very much, Lynn. We'll talk again soon. Cheers. Cheers.